0: Continuing the, the chapter uh, in Po's biography on his encounter with Westerners, this is uh, the chapter called From Distant Lands, and this section is called Pushed. After a few years, Lumpur's attitude to Ajahn Samato changed. Seeing his disciples' growth in confidence and the praise he was receiving, he began to treat him more robustly. Ajahn Sumato remembers, For the first couple of years, Lung Por would compliment me a lot and boost up my ego, which I appreciated, because I tended to be self-disparaging, and to have this constant, very positive attitude towards me was very helpful. Because I felt so respected and appreciated by him, I put forth a lot of effort into the practice. After a few years, it started to change. He saw I was stronger and he began to be more critical. Sometimes he would insult me and humiliate me in public. But by then, I was able to reflect on it. There were times that Lung would tell the whole Dhamma Hall full of lay people about things I'd done that were uncouth. I mean, it's kind of coarse or uh, inappropriate... If you could put your phone away, please. It would be helpful to be listening to the Dhamma reading if you're listening to it. Everyone, monks and laypeople, would be roaring with laughter. I'd just sit there feeling angry and embarrassed. One time, a novice picked up my outer robe by mistake and gave it to him. Longpore laughed and said he knew immediately whose it was because of the bad smell, the furung stink, quote-unquote. Of course, I felt pretty indignant when I heard Lumpur say that, but I could endure it, and because of the respect I felt for him, I didn't show any reaction. He asked me if I was feeling all right, and I said, yes, but he could see that my ears were bright red. (laughs) He had a wonderful sense of timing, and so I could work with it. And I benefited from being able to observe my own emotional reactions to being insulted or humiliated. If he'd done that at the beginning, I would never have stayed. There was no real system that I could see. You just felt that he was trying to help you, forcing you to look at your own emotional reactions. And I always trusted him. He had such a great sense of humour. There was always a twinkle in his eye, always a bit of mischief. And so I just went along with it. Many of Ajahn Sumato's most vivid memories of his early years at Vatbapong are of occasions when some dark cloud or other in his mind dissolved through a sudden insight into the desires and attachments that conditioned it. Longpo's genius as a teacher seemed to him to lie in creating the situations in which this process could take place bringing a crisis to a head, or drawing his attention most skillfully to what was really going on in his mind. His faith in Lung Por allowed him to open up. A smile from his teacher or words of encouragement at the right moment could make hours of frustration and irritation seem ridiculous and insubstantial. A sharp question or rebuke could wake him up from a long bout of self-indulgence. Again, Lumpusumeto is speaking. He was a very practical man, and so he was using the nitty gritty of daily life for insight. He wasn't so keen on using the special event or extreme practices as on getting you to wake up in the ordinary flow of monastic life, and he was very good at that. He knew that any convention can become perfunctory that means kind of automatic or unconscious can become perfunctory and deadening after a while if you just get used to it. He was aware of that, and so there was always this kind of sharpness that would startle and jolt you. In the early days, frustration was the major fuel of Ajahn Sameda's suffering. The afternoon leaf-sweeping periods could be exhausting in the hot season. One day, as he toiled in the sun, his body running with sweat, he remembers his mindfulness becoming consumed by aversion and self-righteousness. Grumbling to himself, I don't want to do this. I came here to get enlightened, not to sweep leaves off the ground. Just then, Lumpur approached him and said, Where's the suffering? Is what the suffering? Again, uh, uh, Lumpur Sameda speaking. I suddenly realized something in me which was always complaining and criticizing and which was preventing me from ever giving myself or offering myself to any situation. Another time I had this really negative reaction to having to sit up and practice all through the night, and I must have let it show. After the evening chanting, Lungpo reminded everyone that they should stay and meditate right through to dawn, except, he said, for somato. <laughs> he can go and have a rest. <laughs> He gave me a nice smile and I just felt so stupid. Of course, I stayed all night. Also, I should mention that uh, uh, people, because Lumpur Cha would, would do that kind of thing, people frequently assumed that he could read people's minds. And he would uh, often sort of downplay that or, or poo poo that and say, and he'd say, it doesn't take much psychic power, you just, you just have to be observant. And that's really what, uh, what it amounted to, is he was extraordinarily observant. And I haven't come across it being quoted in this book, but I have a memory of him saying something along the lines of, all you really need to know about a person is to watch how they, they walk across the monastery, they, they walk down the pathway, or how they, they enter into the, the sala or the eating hall. It just, just, uh, <clears throat> and what he would do is when some new person arrived, a new, uh, a new monk or person arrived in the monastery he would just sort of watch for a few days and then sort of okay <laughs> got yeah get the measure of that person and then he would know oh, this is the kind of person that always arrives first but then leaves first or is the one who's super keen for five minutes and then falls fast asleep or is the one that always sits at the back but is looking out for other people uh, you know, or that they uh, um they they arrive Late for the work detail, but they're always working uh, after everybody else and, and clearing up after everyone else, and, and handing people the right tool at the right moment, or the opposite. You know, they that they, they they show up late. They they are always looking for ways to to, to goof off and to not be involved in the work, and always ready to go and uh, uh, boil up the kettle for a sweet drink if uh, <laughs> if there's an excuse to get out of the uh, of the work. So he would just watch and see how people. Uh, moved how you walk, how you stand up, how you put your bag down, how you, how you bow, and just through being observant, just to seeing how people operate, then he would say, okay. And it wasn't, he wasn't like making a whole kind of list of, sort of uh, a, a detailed profile. He didn't have like filing cabinets full of, of information on everyone, but rather just he would just notice for himself, and so like seeing a. a and he'd say to, to Ajahn Sumaito, are you, are you okay, Sumedha? You know, he, he would definitely notice that his ears were red. You know. All right. So this kind of thing was very, very common. And, and also, uh, his method, as, as Lumpur Sumato is describing here, was, was very situational. Like he used the ordinary, everyday situations of, of life, of living together, of eating, going on the arms round, washing robes, Looking out for each other, health and sickness, comfort and discomfort, and so on. So he would use the situations that arose on their own, and uh, and was never sort of rigging anything or setting anything up or uh, or sort of setting up a particular. I didn't have a, like a plot to uh, say, okay, venerable Anejo, you know, he needs this particular kind of treatment. We'll go into a huddle with a few of the other monks and sort of set up a particular plan to to teach uh, Tananejo what he thinks he needs, but rather it was just completely circumstantial and, and how things popped up. And, and if you knew that uh, <clears throat> you know, Tananejo was really ad- attached to formal practice and was, and was really uh, embarrassed about how, how uh, bad he was with his hands, it uncoordinated, excuse me, using it for example. <laughs> so kind of really bad he was at sort of putting a nail into a piece of wood or, or uh, laying a straight line of bricks then he'd say, oh, oh we need, we need a, a bricklaying project. Oh, an Ajo. Would you like to join in? And just see what someone would do. If he'd say, okay. okay. And say, no, don't ask me to do that. Or, 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 all right. You know, he would see, okay, he's resentful, or he's open, or he's, um, uh, <coughs> he's a- anxious, and just would see what the, what the reaction was. And also, it would be like the, if the the the, the monk, senior monk who's looking after the bricklayer. Oh no! You know, how attached is is the the to oh, it? Yeah, I don't want him. And and then how uh, how they would handle that, and so that it was uh, <clears throat> sometimes it, he was so accurate with with using situations. Um, I was mentioning a couple of days ago about how. Westerners were extremely forthright. They would say things that, that Thai monks or nuns would, n- would never ever say. Um, and so one time, Varapanyo, Paul Breiter, um, actually challenged Lumpur and said, Are you setting these things up? I mean, are you, are you having the kind of meetings to, to work this out? Because he was convinced that Lumpur was having the kind of the sort of plotting meetings. He'd sit down with the other, other monks and kind of work out how they could get Varapanyo that they, they would discuss how they were going to set things up and make it look completely natural and just force him into this really difficult situation that he was really trying to avoid. And uh, Lumpur just laughed and said, no, no. And he said, I, I'm not sure you do, because and then he had like a list of occasions where it was absolutely clear that Lumpur had rigged the whole thing. It was completely, it was a complete frame up. And Lumpur thought it was hilarious. <laughs> he said, I don't have time to do that kind of thing. Why do you think you're so special that I would have, spe- you know, have meetings with other monks to kind of rig, uh, you know, rig life upon just for you? Are you that special? Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, that's interesting. You should have told me you're a really special person. Maybe I should have you know, meetings specifically that worked out to give you a bad time. So, <clears throat> so anyway, to continue... There were so many moments when you were caught up in some kind of personal thing. Again, this is uh, Lumpur Sumato speaking. There were so many moments when you were caught up in some kind of personal thing, and he could sense that. He had the timing to reach you in that moment when you were just ripe, so that you could suddenly realize your attachment. One night we were in the small hall where we did the Pati Mocha, so the um, fortnightly recitation, so it was... Um, down at the end of the eating hall. So you had the, a, kind of a line of three, three buildings that were sort of all together. You had the, the sala, like this building, the sort of main assembly hall. Then you had the, the eating hall, which is a long, narrow building. And then at the end of the eating hall, you had this smaller shrine, shrine room, uh, which was where they had the fortnightly Patimokho recitation. So it's down at the, this little hall at the end where they've been doing Patimokho. So one night we were in the small hall where we did the Pati Moka and his friend Lumpur Chului came to visit. Usually after the Pati Moka was over, we'd go and have a hot drink and then join the lay people in the Dhamma Hall. But on that night, he and Lumpur Chului sat there joking with each other for hours and we had to sit there and listen. I couldn't understand what they were talking about and I got very irritated. I was waiting for him to tell us to go to the hall, but he just carried on. Every now and again he would glance at me. Well, I had a stubborn streak and I wasn't going to give up. I just got more and more angry and irritated. It got to about midnight and they were still going strong, laughing like schoolboys. I got very self-righteous. They weren't even talking seriously about practice or vineyard or anything. My mind kept saying, what a waste of time, they should know better. I was full of my anger and resentment. He knew that I had this stubborn tenacious streak. And so he kept going until two in the morning, three in the morning. At that time, I just gave up to the whole thing, let go of all the anger and resistance, and felt a wave of bliss and relaxation. I felt all the pain had gone. I was in a state of bliss. I felt I'd be happy if he went on forever. He noticed that and told everyone we could leave. (laughs) So that's a, that particular incident appears in many, many, many Lampo Dhamma talks. So please take note. So, um, you have to have uh, total faith in the teacher and the teacher's goodwill um, for that to really work. If you, <clears throat> if you think that there's um, a... Uh, the, the teacher really has got something in for you and is just trying to make you suffer for the, just for the, uh, the hell of it, then... Uh, it's not that liberating. This <laughs> just, inc- just tends to increase more, uh, <clears throat> make more of the pain and increase the feelings of frustration. So the next section is called Speaking from the Heart. <clears throat> Given Ajahn Sumaito's celebrity, so he's being well-known, uh, famous in the area, and his growing proficiency in Thai, it was natural that Wapong's lay supporters would be eager to hear him give a Dhamma talk. Four years after his arrival, Lung Por decided that the time had arrived for his first Western disciple to begin a new kind of training, that of expounding the Dhamma. The opportunity arose during, during a trip to a branch monastery. As evening approached, a large number of lay supporters started to file into the monastery to participate in the evening chanting period and to listen to a Dhamma talk from Lumpur. Lumpur With no prior warning, Lumpur asked Ajahn Sumedho to give the talk. The prospect of ascending the monastery's Dhamma seat and struggling to give an extemporary address to a large audience in a language in which he was not particularly fluent was an intimidating one. Ajin Sumedho froze and declined as politely but firmly as he could. But with his strong trust in Lung and the realization that he was merely postponing the inevitable, he began to reconcile himself to the idea that soon he would have to start teaching. When Lung invited quote unquote, him to give a talk on the next observance day, so there's a kind of invitation that you can't refuse, an offer that uh, you can't refuse. <coughs> When Lumpur invited him to give a talk on the next observance day, uh, he acquiesced in silence. Despite being well aware of Lumpur's view that Dhamma talks should not be planned in advance, Ajahn Sumedho felt insecure. At the time, he was reading a book on Buddhist cosmology and reflecting on the relationship between the different realms of existence and psychological states. He made some notes for the coming talk. So this is... Uh, uh, so, uh, Psychologically, so the heaven realms relate to being happy or sort of the, in the uh, uh, an aesthetically blissful realm. The hell realms, uh, so sort of the states of anger or uh, aggression, hatred is like you know, being in the hell realms. The realms of addiction uh, are the hungry ghost realms and such like. Observance day soon came, and Ajahn Sumedho gave the talk. Although his vocabulary was still quite rudimentary, and his accent shaky, it seemed to go down well. He felt relieved and proud of himself. Throughout the next day, laypeople and monks came up to him to express their appreciation of a fine talk, and he looked forward to basking in the sun of his teacher's praise. But, on paying respects to Lumpur beneath his kuti, and seeing his expressionless face, he felt a chill go through his heart. In a quiet voice, Lumpur said, don't ever do that again. <laughs> Ajahn Sumedha realized that Lungpur knew that he'd thought the talk out beforehand, and that, in his eyes, also, although it had been an intelligent, interesting and informative discourse, it was not the dumber speaking. It was merely thoughts and cleverness. The fact that it was a, quote, good talk, unquote, was not the point. In order to develop the right attitude towards giving dumber talks, A monk needs to guard his mind against the desire for praise and appreciation and he must develop a thick skin. So this applies to nuns, of course, as well. (laughs) Speaking of which, tomorrow evening I'd like to invite one of the sisters to give the Dhamma talk for the one (laughs) prize. Just just coincidentally. If you could pass the message on. Or we'll look after it yourself if the other uh, sisters are not present. Thank you. See, the tradition goes on. <laughs> <laughs> In order to develop the right attitude towards giving dhamma talks, a monk needs to guard his mind against the desire for praise and appreciation, and he must develop a thick skin. One night Ajahn Sumato was asked by Lumpur to give a discourse to the lay people with an unusual condition, it must last for three hours. After about an hour, he'd exhausted his initial subject and began to ramble, hunting with increasing desperation for things to talk about. He paused, repeated himself, and embarked on long meandering asides, painfully aware of members of his audience getting bored and restless, dozing, walking out, just a few dedicated elderly women sat there throughout the whole three hours, slumped, eyes closed, like gnarled trees on a blasted plain. <laughs> Sajjan uh, uh skill with the mojust, the, the perfect expression, just sliding in there, like gnarled trees on a blasted plain, Ajahn her reflected after it was all over. It was a valuable experience for me. I began to realize that what Longpo wanted me to do was to be able to look at this self-consciousness, the posing, the pride, the conceit, the grumbling, the laziness, the not wanting to be bothered, the wanting to please, the wanting to entertain, the wanting to get approval. I think he uh, he took, uh, uh, if I'm remembering uh, his accounts of that, he said, uh, even started talking about what it was like in the U.S. Navy, and uh, sort of passing on sort of stories of uh, life as a sailor uh, in the in the Korean War and anything he could think of that was you know, might be re- remotely uh, talkable aboutable. But you can get pretty desperate, and, and it's it's not an exaggeration that the very first um, Dhamma talk that uh, I uh, gave in my my version of Thai language, it was it was like that. The um, I was at. A, a branch monastery in uh, Royet which is a little bit to the north of Ubon, and I was the, the only foreigner in the in the monastery. So the um, uh, <coughs> the abbot had uh, agreed to. Uh, we were originally going to have the the katina at our little branch monastery you know, on a certain date, and then the the abbot of the local mon- the monastery in the local town decided to ha- have his katina the same day. So ours got delayed. And so uh, uh, the the Ajahn of our monastery, Ajahn Rungrit, said, Oh, um, so our katina is going to be a week later, um, and we're going to go to this katina in the local town in, in um, <coughs> Pontong, and um, uh, can I invite you to give the talk? So Ajahn Rungrit is a really good Dhamma teacher. He's come very uh, very eloquent and very funny and... And use would use the local dialect really heavily and kind of use all the sort of local accents because he he was from that that very you know, that was his home village so he's very much a local boy, and so he gave he got up in the dumber <clears> seat <throat> and gave a talk first and of course it's very it's all very fluent and funny and everyone's inspired and, and then I get up and of course I've been doing exactly the same thing that Lumpur Smeder had been doing, and so for for days and days and days I was trying not to prepare but finding my mind incessantly preparing about um, uh, this Dhamma talk, and it's a long time ago, it was 1979, so 39 years ago. <clears throat> so I was trying to, to compare sweeping leaves with, with uh, sweeping the um, defilements out of the mind, and I had like 1% of the vocabulary I needed to to talk about those kind of things and it was exactly like that people started chatting with each other they got up and walked out sort of lay down to take a nap <laughs> <laughs> really I'm not kidding it was, just, it was a it was really it was really terrible and and uh, uh, and uh, about you know <coughs> a certain amount of time into it one of the again these sort of stalwart these nulled the nulled trees the old, the ox sort of these uh, village women chewing beetle nuts sitting in the front row just kind of broke in and said, So, can you eat sticky rice? Yeah. <laughs> what, do you th- what do you think of the local pladek? You know? and the fermented, fermented fish and, and such like they just kind of, Out of sheer mercy, they just sort of put me out of my misery and just started to uh, have a conversation. And uh, then as we were driving back to our, our little branch monastery, uh, the Ajahn said to me, Well... Uh, at least you know it can, it can never get worse than that. <laughs> <laughs> Which was kind of weirdly comforting. <laughs> strange, sort of, Schadenfreude ish way. It was kind of, well, yeah, that's true. That's, that's as bad as it's ever going to be. It's like having all your teeth pulled out without an anaesthetic. Yeah. Okay, that's, that's, that's substantially embarrassing and painful and awful. And it was true, actually. It never, it never was quite as bad as that. <laughs> So the next passage, the next section is called "Turn and Face the Strange." So there are some subtle David Bowie quotations that come through Ajahn Jayasaro's book. So this is a, a slight mutation on um, uh, David Bowie's song uh, "Changes," so that they kind of slide in here and there. And of course, Ajahn Jayasaro, being who he well, you see, this was given; these this was, these teachings were all given in the 1970s, and that was really when. Bowie was around, and so it's just a sort of uh, a nod to that, sort of cultural influences that were in the air at the same time these teachings were, these events were happening and these teachings were being given. So this, this section is called Turn and Face the Strange. Ajahn Sumedho was the only Western monk at Wabapong for four years, until, in 1971, two more American monks arrived to spend the rains retreat. One of them, Dr. Douglas, Dr. Douglas Burns, was a psychologist based in Bangkok who intended to be a monk for the duration of the retreat. The other was Jack Cornfield, uh, who gave himself the name Venerable Sunyo. When he was bhikkhu it wasn't actually Su- Sunyo. Sunyo means empty, the empty one, so that's the, the name that Jack used to refer to himself in his own books, but I think he had a much less cool name. So he gave himself... You know, the venerable empty in, in Buddhist kind of ways of thinking that's a, that's, a, that's a seriously good name to have you know, the empty one, so you can be conceited about your good name, yeah. which is empty. <laughs> so I think he had his, his actual name was one of these sort of much more um, uh, multi multi-syllab- syllable and uh, um, not so um, f- easy to trip off the tongue. But anyway, that's uh, what he went by. And uh, Ashen Jayasara checked that with me afterwards, after the book was already in print, and I said, well, yeah, well, Sunio wasn't his actual name. It's just what he, he liked to use for himself in his books. So damn, okay. So we'll, <coughs> we'll track down what the real one was for the next edition. So the other was Jack Cornfield, Venerable Sunio, quote-unquote, who, after practising in monasteries throughout Thailand and Burma, was to return to lay life and become one of the most influential teachers in the American Vipassana movement. Neither monk stayed at Wat Bupong very long, but both exerted a strong influence on future developments. At the end of his short period in the robes, Dr. Burns returned to Bangkok, where he would recommend Westerners interested in becoming monks to go and live with Lumpur. A number of the first generation of monks came to Ubon following such a referral. In the months that Jack Cornfield was with Lumpur, he made assiduous notes of the teachings that he received and later printed them as the very popular fragments of a teaching and notes from a session of questions and answers. Subsequently, as Cornfield's own reputation spread in America, his frequent references to Lumpur introduced Lumpur's name to a Western audience. This acquaintance was strengthened by A Still Forest Pool, a collection of Lung teachings which Cornfield co-authored with another ex-monk, Paul Brighter, formerly the Venerable (coughs) Warapanyo. Lung charisma and his ability to move and inspire his Western disciples soon became well known. But if Lung was the main reason what Bopong became the most popular Thai forest monastery for Westerners, seeking to make a long-term commitment to monastic life, Ajahn Sumedho's presence was often a deciding factor. Here was someone who had proved it could be done. So that's, useful to have, uh, describing that. Um, There was a question a day or two ago about, uh, (coughs) I think Venerable Manunya was asking about um, how did people find out. So Dr. Burns, I'd forgotten uh, that uh, he was um, quite a well-known figure in, in Bangkok at that time as a psychologist, and was sort of around and about in academic and um, Western circles, and so he was uh, quite proactive in sending people up to Wat Bopong, saying, "If you really want to meet, a, meet an enlightened master, then go and see Yadon uh, Pochar. If you or oh, there's you know, this Western monk, this American uh, Ajahn Sumato, who's uh, who's very good as a teacher and a very good example." And again, carry on to talking about uh, Ajahn Sumato, He had lived a number of years in trying conditions with no other Western companions and had obviously gained much from the practice. He was a translator and a mentor. And although he resisted the evolution, he was also becoming a teacher in his own right. Venerable Varapanyo arrived in Wapapong at a time when Lung Por was away for a few days and his meeting with Ajahn Sumato was crucial to his decision to stay. This is Varapanyo writing. Sitting up there on the porch in the peace of the forest night, I felt that here was a place beyond the suffering and confusion of the world. The Vietnam War, the meaninglessness of life in America and everywhere else, The pain and desperation of those I had met on the road in Europe and Asia, who were so sincerely looking for a better way of life, but not finding it. This man, in this place, seemed to have found it, and it seemed entirely possible that others could as well. In 1972, the sangha of Western monks was steadily increasing, and Lumpur decided that they should spend the rains retreat at Tamseng Pet, a branch monastery perched on a steep hill overlooking the flat Isan countryside, about 100 kilometres to the north of Wat Bapong. Away from the guiding influence of Lung personality conflicts festered, and a burned-out Ajahn Sumato left at the end of the retreat. This is uh, Ajahn Sumato speaking here. To begin with, I felt a lot of resentment about taking responsibility. On a personal level, the last thing I wanted to do was to be with other Western monks. I was adjusted to living with Thai monks and to feeling at ease within this structure and culture, and yet there was an increasing number of Westerners coming through. Dr Burns and Jack Cornfield had been encouraging people to come. After the Western Sangha had this horrendous rains retreat at Tamsungpet, I ran away, spent the rains in a monastery in the southeast, and then went to India. But while I was there, I had a really powerful heart-opening experience. I kept thinking of Lung Poor and how I'd run away. And I felt a great feeling of gratitude to him. And I decided that I would go back and serve. It was very idealistic. I'll just give myself to Lung Por, anything he he wants me to do. So this, uh, he just uses this adjective uh, horrendous for the rains retreat. There was all kinds of stories trickled down through the ages uh, from that. that time there was I think about five or six Western monks. There was uh, uh, Longpo Sumedo was there. Ajahn Liam was the senior Thai monk there, who's now the abbot of Wat Bopong, uh, and he's Mr. Equanimity. So he, even that, even that in that era, he was extraordinarily even-minded and equanimous. So with all these very eccentric and difficult Westerners there, so there was uh, uh, Ajahn Sumedo was the senior Western monk, and then there was uh, Pabakaro and Gito. There was, um, I think, um, I don't think uh, uh, Anando had showed up then. I think there was um, uh, Chris Cook, uh, who was called Damaguto, who was, uh, was an old friend of uh, Ajahn Sundra and Ajahn Sundra's former husband in Hull, in England, Damaguto, and there was another Amer- American called Aruno. Um, and another American called Aditamo, uh, I believe that's who. it Well, I'm not absolutely sure, but there was about um, uh, f- uh, five or six Westerners there altogether, and uh, it was really quite quite a workout. In uh, because the kind of people who were leaving the West and have to shave their heads and live as as ascetic monks in the in the wilds of northeast Thailand, you had to be a little bit of an extremist even to have the idea in the first place. Sort of mild and easygoing characters did not tend to show up so there were some pretty intense uh, people there and um, even with uh, a couple of the um, the venerables uh, having received some uh, LSD tablets and deciding wouldn't it be interesting to, to see what, what effect uh, LSD has on meditation or meditation has on LSD so, which then Lumpur uh, had to look after the results of that particular experiment. That's another story. (laughs) This is not something that monks usually do, or nuns. But once in a while, people get these crazy ideas and go off and do totally wacky things of that nature. So uh, it's also... um, the, uh, so when he went to India, then he had this, this uh, very strong experience of, of gratitude. And in, in the Pali, they have a pair of terms that they use. The word for gratitude is katanyu or katanyuta. And then it's paired with another term, which is katavedi. <coughs> so they don't just often uh, use katanyu on its own or katanyuta, but they use them as a pair. So katanyu... Uh, Means to be grateful, katanyata gratitude, and then Katavedi is the response in the heart, the what what you what you choose to do uh, as a result of feeling grateful. So sometimes it's it's translated as the debt of gratitude, uh, but it, the word debt is a bit sort of pejorative, or it's a, it's a got a, a, um, a kind of uh, negative tone to it. So kata nyuta, uh and Katawedi, uh, they, they work together as the, the gratitude having arisen, then there's a, a, a moving forward to what can I do in response to this, how can I uh, uh, how can I help? So it's often the, the, like repaying the debt is somehow the way it's sometimes translated, but it's, it's not really a, a sort of an obligation or a sort of, oh, I suppose I have to pay that off. Like a kind of resentful or begrudging feeling, but it's more—it's more of a like a natural response of the heart to that grateful quality. So again, Ajahn Sumedho carries on with his account here. We just opened this horrible—we br- <laughs> just opened this horrible branch monastery at Suan Kloe, down on the Cambodian border, and nobody wanted to go and stay there. So. It's also a bit ironic because Sun means banana garden, so it's got quite, quite an attractive name. It's like calling Greenland, Greenland. You know, it's covered in ice and rock, but you know, the, the, uh, the, the explorer who discovered it, though I'll call it Greenland, it's good marketing. You know, get the rest of the people to leave the village in the comfort of, of, uh, of Iceland and, and go off there. It's, great. it's Greenland, it's, it's, got some, you know, it, it's a, uh, good prospects there. So Suongloi was similar, it was this kind of parched rice field with little tiny saplings, there was no real forest there at all. And the, the, the sort of lush banana garden, so you have a beautiful and tasty bananas every day, was not, not, not a major part of the life. So Suongloi, <clears throat> down on the Cambodian border, and nobody wanted to go and stay there. I'd gone for a katina ceremony and, ha- and had been taller than all the trees. <laughs> I mean, he is six foot two, but still, there's not much of a forest. So, forest in inverted commas, forest monastery. So, in India, I thought I'd volunteer to go and take over Suunt I had this romantic image of myself. <clears throat> of course, when I got back, Numpur refused to send me there by the end of the year, there were so many Westerners at Wat Bapong that he asked me to translate for them. Basically, I trusted him because he was the one pushing me into things that I wouldn't have done by myself. Any questions, reflections? That's the end of that little section. there. Questions, reflections? Okay. This next part is called Through Western Eyes, and uh, uh, subtitled Beginnings. The question which every Western monk would get asked sooner or later, and usually sooner, was why he chose to become a monk. It was often a more difficult question to answer than might be expected. It wasn't so easy to distinguish causes from triggers, or to be sure that an uplifting narrative was not being patched together with hindsight. Monks usually settled on recounting the events leading up to their decision and their departure to Thailand. There was for instance Pabakro, an American helicopter pilot who first came to the country on R&R, rest and relaxation, during the Vietnam War. There were the Peace Corps volunteers and the young travelers backpacking through Asia like the Canadians Tiradamo and Viradamo. There were also those like the British Brahmawangso and the Australian Nyanadamo, who came with the express intention of becoming monks. Many started off by reading books. The first generation, when books on Theravada Buddhism were hard to find, were inspired by the works of Alan Watts, Charles Luke, and D. T. Suzuki. Later generations arrived having read translated works of Lumpocha, books by Ajahn Sumedho, or American Vipassana teachers. Some were seeking to deepen and stabilise the lucid calm they'd experienced on seven or ten day meditation retreats. Others were inspired by their contact with Buddhist monks while travelling around Thailand. One amongst the latter was Ajahn Sujito. He recounts the effect of seeing monks on arms round. One early morning, sitting in a cafe, I saw monks from a local monastery walking on arms round. <coughs> They were in a line, barefoot in the dusty road, walking towards me. The rising sun glowed through their brown robes. Each monk had only a simple bowl with him, and their faces were serene and gentle. Their walking was calm and unhurried. They were not going anywhere. They were just walking. The weight of years of self-importance lifted off my heart. Something soared within me, like a bird at dawn. But for the disciples of Lung Por, it was almost invariably his presence and example that inspired them to stay and take the leap into monastic life, or, if they were already ordained, to make a long-term commitment to the Wat training. For most, the first meeting with him, although outwardly inconsequential, was momentous and life-changing. Some monks spoke of a sense of relief, as if they had finally found a place and a teacher they didn't want to leave. As Ajanyanadamo squatted down respectfully, hands in Anjali, Lungpoor walked over to him and without speaking, took his hands in his own. This is um, Ajanyanadamo speaking. I felt this shock and joy and a weight fall from my shoulders. I didn't realise until after he'd gone how much suffering I'd been carrying around with me. One of the richest sources of anecdotes concerning Lumpur and his Western disciples is to be found in the writings of Paul Brighter. Brighter arrived in Wat Bupon in 1972, and as Venerable Varapunyo, struggled gamely through five years of monastic training before disrobing and returning to his native United States. In 1993, his memoir of the years he spent with Lumpur, Venerable Father, was printed in Bangkok. It begins with words, That struck a chord with many of his contemporaries. Quote, If I have ever loved anybody in my life, then it is Lumpur Cha. Venerable Varapanyu's first meeting with Lumpur took place in Bangkok. So uh, he's left out a a particular part of the first paragraph of that book. And if I can remember it, it goes something like, So he starts off the book with that, if I've ever loved anyone in my life, but then later on in the the same paragraph, a couple of sentences on, he says, it was a dreary day in a dreary life. Uh, And uh, I was trying to find a way to spend the dreary afternoon with my fellow prisoners of Buddha at a miserable, (laughs) dreary what in Bangkok. I went into the tea room, and, and one of the monks asked me, would you like something to drink? They hadn't got any hemlock, so I settled for cocoa. <laughs> <laughs> so it gives you a bit of a flavor of the war upon you. Hemlock is poison. <laughs> the po- Socrates drank hemlock to kill himself when he was being arrested by the Greek authorities. So, so it gives you a bit of a flavor, his sort of Jewish New Yorker wry sense of humor. So they hadn't got, hemlock, hadn't got any hemlock, so I settled for cocoa. Anyway, after that... And then he goes on to describe his meeting with uh, Lung po Cha. I was overwhelmed by his radiant, exuberant happiness. I had really never seen anyone like that. He seemed like a big happy frog sitting on his lily pad. And I thought if all you have to do to be like that is to sit in the forest for 30 years, it's worth it. <laughs> I had almost exactly the same thought. (laughs) I remember how my spirits were lifted then. In the car, going back to the what, I was thinking, there's hope. The practice of meditation and the Buddhist monk's way of life, both of which I found so difficult, much more difficult than anything I'd ever done, thought of doing, or heard of anyone else doing, can produce results. Seeing a living example was worth more than reading any number of books. Ajahn a monk with a rigorous scientific background, so he did a a physics degree at Cambridge, a monk with a rigorous scientific background, decided to, to take Lumpur as his teacher after having his rational mind confounded. He recalls that shortly after his arrival in the Wad, while listening to Lumpur teaching another Western monk, he mentally formulated his own question. As soon as he'd done so, Lungpo spoke words that seemed to answer his query directly, more so than that of the apparent questioner. (sighs) Assuming it was probably a coincidence, he formulated another question, which was also promptly answered. This occurred again and again. Not all of the foreign monks of Wat Bapong were from Western countries. Ajinkoesuko, for instance, was from northern Japan. After a period mountaineering in Nepal, he had devoted himself to learning yoga in India before visa difficulties forced him to leave for Thailand. For him, inspiration first arose from his impression of the monastery itself and what it suggested about the abbot. And this is Ajahn Gwesko speaking. I arrived at the Wat just as the monks were leaving on alms route. I was very impressed to see them walking in line, composed and restrained. I couldn't take my eyes away from them. It was such a beautiful sight, something I'd never seen before. I walked into the Wat and the path was neat and clean and pleasant to walk along. There were no branches or leaves littering the path. It impressed me even more. I thought, the abbot must be very good. He must have a very strict discipline. Ajangweisko's lay name had been Shibahashi. Lumpur found it impossible to pronounce and dubbed him Sibat Hasip. Which means four baht fifty satang. So that's a, the Thai currency. Is the baht so? Shibahashi. We can see baht hasip four baht fifty. So that's how he remembered our names. Our names were so weird to him. So he would come up with with um, <coughs> with sort of ways to um, to remember. So Ajinjaisaro's name was his lay name was Shaun and uh, so the the Thai word for a spoon is chawn. And the Lao pronunciation, the C H becomes a s sound, so "san" so, so is the word for spoon in, in Lao. So he became yeah, he became uh, the venerable spoon. So that we we all got uh, kind of different nicknames of that, that kind. Um, so Sibat Hasit. he inspired the young man by explaining how an inner search. A search for the end of suffering was more valuable than an outer search. Unless he knew how to abandon negative mental states, climbing mountains was a waste of time. This inner search and training lay at the heart of monastic life. For about 50, he decided to stay. <laughs> Some 15 years later, when Lumpur was bedridden, Ajahn Gwesko became one of the stalwarts of the nursing shifts. Above all, he was motivated by gratitude. He said that he felt that, however much he did, he would never be able to repay even a small part of the debt he owed his teacher. I felt as if he gave me new life. He was like mother and father to me. He gave me so many things. It was like I was slowly sinking into quicksand, just about to be swallowed, and then he pulled me out and saved my life. The young Australian musician, who was later to become Ajahn Puriso, was struck by the the contrast between Wapapong and other temples. The sombre-coloured robes of the monks, their composure as they went about their duties, their aloofness, the sense that something meaningful was going on. This is Ajahn Puriso speaking. I was told I could stay in the Dhamma Hall, informed where to find a pillow and a blanket, and then left to myself. The eerie Pali Thai chanting I heard that night was totally beyond my mind's grasp I couldn't even figure out if it sounded good or just strange but the sight of the monks in the great dark hall lit only with a few candles squatting immobile on their toes as they chanted for more than 30 minutes was truly awe-inspiring Also, well, Ajahn Puriso was one of the monks that was at chart when I first showed up and so he and Ajahn Brahmawang so they were both about two or three vasas when I got there so Ajahn Puri so said, like, like many of them, he thought, well, you know, he, he's a musician, he said, well, you know what I'll do, I'll, I'll come here and do meditation for about three, three months or so, get enlightened, and I'll really improve my technique on the guitar, so go back, get to the top of the charts, make a million dollars, and be a, a, a rich and famous, totally enlightened rock and roll star. Yeah. geez, that'd be good. So that's what he had in mind. Was, um, and... <clears throat> Many uh, uh, the people figure they, you know, just because of re- having read enough, you know, too many Zen books, they just go there for a couple of months. It <clears throat> might, might, take, might take three or four you know, before they reach total enlightenment and then back to the beach or you know, back to the, the, the music studio to be a famous Australian rock and roll star. Ajahn Pasno, abbot of Chart for over ten years, and <coughs> now abbot of Abayagiri Forest Monastery in Northern California, First came to Wat Bupong as a visiting monk, after having entered the sangha in Bangkok. His thoughts echo those of Ajahn Sumato. An abiding impression I gained of the way of life at Wat Wapong was that this was something that you could live over a long, sorry, that this was something that you could live over a long time, whereas at the places I'd practiced meditation before. It was a matter of applying a particular technique in a kuti in a special section of a monastery. It wasn't something that could be lived. Wat opened up a new dimension for me, that sense of being able to make a long-term commitment to a teacher, a training, and the vineyard. What struck me very strongly was the thought that if you were going to lead the holy life for any length of time and reap benefits from it, then you'd need to keep the vineyard to have an integrated lifestyle of Dhamma Vinaya practice. Luang really understood very clearly how completely we need to restructure our perceptions and every aspect of our conditioning. So his way of teaching was not just a meditation technique, but a complete training of body, speech and mind. That was really the hallmark, his emphasis, what I feel was special about him. After a period of probation as a visiting monk, a kandukha, an Akanduka monk. Ajampasana was fully accepted into the Watbapong community. Again, Ajampasana is speaking here. I remember looking forward to being able to participate in the Patimoka, the recitation of the rule that takes place every, uh, every two weeks. I remember looking forward to being able to participate in the Patimoka and getting quite excited. When the bell was rung, I was very eager and immediately made my way to the Oppositor Hall. Lumpur didn't show up for another hour and a half. He was over in the Mechi section, the the nuns section of the monastery, giving them a talk. And I had a lot of trouble sitting on the hard floor. We hadn't even started the Patimoka, and already I was squirming. Lumpur came and chatted back and forth with various monks, and then we performed the Patimoka. Afterwards, about 10pm, he started to give a discourse, and that went on until almost 3 o'clock in the morning and he looked over innocently at the clock and said, hmm, maybe you better ring the bell for morning chanting. (laughs) Then Lung walked into the Dhamma Hall to give a short talk to the lay people, and we went to have a drink. The kettles of sweet drinks had been standing there since the previous evening, and were full of ants. Not on purpose, you know. Because of the sugar in the drink, then the ants would climb up and go through the spout. They're, they're attracted by the smell of the sugars it wasn't ant tea on purpose <laughs> <laughs> but the, the kettles were full of ants and <clears throat> I must confess that quickly dampened my enthusiasm for patimoka those were the days those were the days so any questions, reflections thoughts wish you were there <laughs> <laughs> these mats and zafus. This is all aspects of the Dhamma ending age. All this, but uh, we have our own ways of making our, ourselves uncomfortable, more mentally than physically. So, but that's a. Uh, I wanted to, to read some of this section just to give a bit of a historical flavour. Some of these um, characters uh, are part of our community. Some are still in robes. Some are not still in robes. Like Puriso is. Um, uh, back in, he's a layman again back in Australia he became quite a well known Dhamma teacher in Thailand and then um, fell in love with a girl from the village and married her and so they moved to Australia they've got two grown up kids now and he does the Thai um, travel section for I think um, Lonely Planet in, uh, lives in Melbourne he was, uh, like Lumpur Semedo. he was very tall and skinny at the time. He was a monk, but he said, uh, uh, well, I was corresponding with him a bit about um, some translations. He's a very good uh, spoken and written Thai. And, uh, and uh, <coughs> again, he, uh, he said, well, yeah, you wouldn't recognize me. It's all gone pear-shaped. <laughs> <laughs> so he was bemoaning the fact that he's, uh, he's not, not tall and skinny anymore. He's just sort of spread sideways as the years have gone by. Ajahn Gwaisaka was also a very influential monk in Thailand for many years, and um, but he left the robes uh, about five years ago now. And, um, but uh, Ajahn Pasno is still uh, very much in robes, still the abbot of uh, Abhagiri. Uh, Ajahn Tiridhamo, Viridhamo, uh, still uh, very much in, uh, in action. So some have stayed in robes, some have not. But it gives you a bit of a flavor of uh, those uh, early years and where, where people came from. But the, the majority um, uh, didn't think they were going to be staying around particularly long. And uh, uh, one of Ajahn Pasana's most frequently recounted stories was that when he first went to... Because he was ordained at uh, Wat playing uh, the Vipassana Monastery in Bangkok as he describes where well, you just did sort of in short periods of intense meditation in, the, in what playing, um, sort of meditation section. And uh, he'd heard of Lumpur Chars' um, reputation, so he went up to Ubon and Lumpur said, five years. If you, if you want to come and stay, if you want to come and train with me, five years. And so at that point, Ajahn Pasano was thinking of maybe staying for six months maximum. But uh, he said he just ran, he just kind of went off and um, went to stay in different places, but he couldn't forget Lumpur and, he, and uh, eventually he sort of came back with his tail between his legs and said, okay, I'll do it, five years. And, uh, <clears throat> so he's now been in robes for uh, uh, 44 years. So he's one of the most well-respected um, Elders of our community, and he and I were uh, were co-abbots of Abayagiri for 13, 14 years together. So I'll leave it there for this evening. And uh, also I have a three-week-long solo retreat beginning tomorrow. So uh, i have a long pause between this reading and the next one. You can read your own minds. (laughs) <laughs> Unfortunately, this is still the only copy in, uh, that exists in the the, uh, the monastery. But uh, I think we're expecting seven or eight hundred from KL. I'm looking four thousand. Hmm? Four thousand, and they are due to arrive. No, no, no date yet. No date yet. So, like waiting for the Dhamma talk to, to come to an end. <laughs> a long wait but uh, the secret of patience is not to be waiting just to uh, like, uh, like Lumpur Samhita's epiphany at, the, um, at uh, three in the morning you just give up and you can quite enjoy it Okay, what I, what I want isn't happening never mind I'll just want something else and then uh, you find that uh, the bliss was not in the arrival of the books the bliss was in your mind We just had to discover it there.